are featured BBBYZ Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Pure Water for the World, Road Scholar, The Ark of the United States. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Well, for those of you who know about the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, we have a variety of programs. Uh, the, the one that we talk about the most is our reporting on charities in relation to a set of 20 standards. What these standards do is help us appreciate, once we do the evaluations of organizations in relation to these standards, to help us appreciate the extent to which a charity is accountable and trustworthy. And uh, the standards cover everything from how well an organization is governed to the truthfulness of the information that it's putting out. Uh, we talk about how a charity manages and reports its finances and their fundraising practices and areas that really help us get into an understanding of what's going on inside of an organization from an accountability standpoint. We even ask whether they are doing impact or effectiveness studies to assure that organizations are working to, to be effective in achieving their mission. So that's one of our programs. That's the main program. And we have well over 1,500 charity reports on national organizations and local ones that you will have heard of. In fact, our, our reports are mostly done on organizations that someone in the public has asked us about. So you can go to our website, give.org, and if you ever want to know anything about these organizations, you can go to their website and get a report. In addition to that, though, we have other things that we do, like this podcast. This podcast, we say powered by, but it's essentially a program of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, an organization that was formed in 2001 although it had been around in a different form since the 1920s. It was part of the Better Business Bureau system. So we have this other thing we do, as in a, among the many things we do, called the Donor Trust Report. And it's six years old. 
But I want to talk for a second about the origin of the donor trust report, because I think it's an important story for how organizations in today's environment should give their employees and leaders inside of the organization room to create and to take on projects that really go toward their passion, assuming, of course, it's consistent with mission. As some of you may know, recently I was appointed to the board of an organization called the Institute for the Future. And I'll tell the story about my relationship with the Institute another time, but it it goes back about 10 years when I met the former president and now senior fellow of the Institute, Bob Johansson. Bob had come out with a book called Leadership Literacies about, I want to say, six or seven years ago. I think it's already by now. And in that book, Bob talks about some of the things that leaders need to focus on. And one of them was to consider how to build resiliency inside of their organizations so that they could be able to change and adapt to an ever-changing environment. Well, Bob has this tool that he designed called, and he calls it, check this out, voluntary fear engagement. Voluntary fear engagement, where you're supposed to take your organization through an exercise where they're managing a crisis, not a real crisis, but a potential crisis. And you're to turn the crisis essentially over to your team and ask them to come up with ideas to address the crisis. So we did this voluntary fear engagement under my leadership at the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. And I told my team the challenge was that we were going to lose half of our funding over the next 18 months, and they needed to do some things to give us better visibility so that we can improve our funding and get more organizations evaluated, et cetera, and essentially win, win back that revenue. And one of the ideas, they came up with a bunch of ideas. It was amazing what they did. But one of the ideas was to do a survey of the donating public. And the person who came up with that idea is here with me today. That survey was something that we actually followed through on, and it became the Give.org Donor Trust Report. And I'll tell you that now in the sixth year, because we jumped right on the idea, so it's in the sixth year now. In its six years, it's been one of the most visible media opportunities that we've had organization and we get a fair amount of media, but the donor trust report is always covered by the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And this year it was even covered by the Associated Press. And so it went out into a number of publications as a result. 
And it's that way because of the quality of the information and insight that we get from these reports. And our most recent one has come out. And today I wanted to bring back, because you've had her, we've had her on the show before. I wanted to bring back Elvia Castro. Elvia is the person who came up with this idea on the BBB Wise Coming Alliance team. She's brilliant. And she has driven along with other teammates this work. And by the way, this isn't the only thing she does. She's responsible for all of our regional charity reporting that we do at the Wise Giving Alliance. She's also the person generally that I turn to when I have a crazy idea and I want to do something. She serves on the board of the, I think we call it Charity Monitors Worldwide now. Yes. Charity Monitoring Worldwide. Charity Monitoring Worldwide, which is a organization whose board I served on some years. And I said, Elvia, it's time for you to serve. And she says, well, can I? She, and she just readily did it. She has also helped create a really interesting report that we did for a charity called Creating Healthier Communities that looked into their organizational transformation. Um, so she is one of our stars. And I always love the opportunity to bring her back on the show, especially around these reports. We counted, I think this is now the fourth time that you've been on the show, Elvia. So you're an, you're an expert. One day, maybe we'll just turn the show over to you and let you host it. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, Art. And I, you know, it's, I'm always glad to come back and talk to you about this stuff and, and get more credit that is due to myself. So uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you back and it's great even greater to have you on our team. Uh, how long have you been with us now? 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. Wow. So a little bit. Years. And that's another thing, Elvia. People don't leave the Wise Giving Alliance. I don't know what it is. I'm, a, I'm knocking wood because I don't want anybody to leave. That's right. There's only about a couple people who have been here less than me. So I'm, you know, relatively a newbie yeah. and 10 years in. So isn't that, that's amazing. I, I don't know how many organizations can actually say, that they're probably, and we only have a, we don't have a big staff. We're about what, 13 people, something like that. And a lot of consultants we use, but the, the truth is that only about 20% of our staff have been here less than 10 years, less than 20%, really less than 20% of our staff have been here less than 10 years. Right. That's, That's amazing. Impressive. Yeah. We just, we so love it so much. You know, and the team, why that the team in particular, I think. Yeah, and it's a great team. And I, I don't know, maybe one of the reasons for that is, I like to believe anyway, is that we take advantage of everything you bring to the table in your creativity and in your interests, just like we did with you in the Donor Trust Report. I want to know what you guys know, and we want to take advantage of that for the good of the people who are depending on our work. So, what was it, Elvia, before we get into the actual report this time, but what was it about the donor trust report that made you feel like this is something that we should be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think it came out of a recognition from the team that the day-to-day -day work that we do is really important, but there's a limited audience to it. 
So we know that there's, uh, you know, somewhere between five and 14% of people who, before they want to make a contribution, they want to verify that they're comfortable with making that contribution based on what a third party organization has done and looked at with the organization. And that's really important. But we know that for kind of the broader base of the population, identifying trust with a charity might be outside of kind of that objective process and more of a feeling or an instinct. So we really wanted to take a look at what it took to to have someone from the general public trust a charity and kind of understand that difference between what we might think is reality based on our analysis, but also just perception and how that perception is formed. Well, I had never thought about doing a survey like this because the last ones we did before the donor trust report were madly expensive and they were based on phone calls that were made to people to get their responses, like a 20 minute interview to get the responses. And this was back in 2001. So it's a long time ago, but it just shows you how the world's changed. Now we can do these surveys and the cost is much less than it used to be. And the information is equally powerful because you can do them more frequently and do comparisons and so forth. So it's just wonderful that you came up with the idea and that we're doing this now for the reasons that you mentioned. I mean, we want to give, we want to better understand how people are thinking about their donations and about charities in particular when they make those donations. So, so let's talk about this particular study. This one we sort of focused on this idea that I talk about a lot, this, this data that I, that I talk about a lot, which is that we've seen a declining number of people giving to charitable organizations. And what you try to do in this particular report is understand why people who stopped giving did that and what their expectations are relative to giving to nonprofit organizations, right? That was one of the key objectives of this particular study. So tell us what you found and, and, and how you organized this particular study. Yeah. And first, I think it's worth dedicating a little bit more time to why we did this. And so I know, you know, you serve in the Generosity Commission, and this has been kind of a priority of yours to to understand why it is that a portion of the of the population is kind of disengaging with the charitable sector. And so the statistics are pretty striking. So I want to say, um, I don't remember the specifics, but in the last 20 years, I think it's dropped, the number of households that contributed charities has dropped about 15%. And in the most recent Given USA, they identified that you know, just 10 years ago, 74% of contributions to charities came from individuals. And in a 10-year span, that went down by 10% to 64%. And that difference has been made up by foundations, which is wonderful. And I think we all appreciate foundations stepping up and and giving more contributions over time. But that trend is also really concerning because we want charities to have a broad base of individuals who are engaged with the causes and with with the charitable sector. And so one thing to really kind of hone in on is 
if there are fewer people donating to a charity, it leaves the charity more dependent on kind of their fewer contributors and more vulnerable. But even beyond that, it may mean for some charities that the population contributing to the charity is less representative of the population served. Um, and that, that, I think, is something that we don't want to see happen. Another thing that I think came out from the reactions to the study, I heard a fundraiser articulate it a little bit different. And what he said was that uh, identity-based contributions are the most loyal and the most important to the charity because they are you know, they feel engaged and connected. So if you lose that, you're much more vulnerable as an organization. So first, I just wanted to make sure that the audience really understood why this was so important to us. And having said that, what we did is, you mentioned the donor trust report has been going on for now six, seven years. In every donor trust report, we try to focus on kind of a core set of questions that goes to, does the public trust charities? Why? Which kind of charities do they trust most? And that kind of thing. But we also have a special topic, and we really wanted this year's topic to be honing in on why it is that some people stop contributing. So one of the core questions we asked was just that. Tell us over the past five years, have you been engaged with charities? Did you stop contributing, decrease your contribution, maintain your contribution, or increase your contribution? When we honed into the folks who stopped contributing, we wanted to figure out why it was that they stopped contributing. Or on the opposite end, folks who we maintained or increased, we wanted to figure out what it was that was driving their giving. Um, so that's you know already a whole lot. Um, and we can go into kind of the, the responses in more in more in depth. But I think one thing that came out really, really strong from the answers were finances, poverty and inequality, I think are really affecting this trend. And if you want to, we can go into, you know, a whole whole lot of questions that address that issue. But other than that, I think other things that came out were lack of a sense of community, polarization, and then just themes that had to do with engagement and competing priorities when it comes to ways of being generous. Well, one of the things I remember we reported was that people who dropped out sort of expect wealthier people to make up the difference. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. And thank goodness for a time, at least wealthier people are giving significantly to make up some of the difference. But as you said, we need broad-based supporters. That's unusual for our society that we would only have, you know, wealthy people giving. We, we, we were a society where everybody pitched in and gave what they could. Now, I guess you could say, if you were to step back, right? Oh, of course, you know, people who have more, they should be taking care of the society. They benefited more financially from it and they should be giving more. But there is a cost associated with that. There's a cost associated with that. And I want to talk about it and see what your reaction is. One of the challenges with that is that an organization is more dependent on those large gifts than they would be if they had a broad base of support, right? So imagine an organization doing its work and suddenly some of those large donors fought, fell off or they just decided for whatever reason they wanted to support something else. It throws that whole organization into crisis. 
And I could I could tell you now, Elvia, that I'm connected to in different ways. Probably three organizations that are dealing with that now. They had great years last year. And then, boom, just like that, they lost some large gifts. And now they're in somewhat of a crisis financially to continue the programs at the same level because they didn't have a broad base of donor support nor did they have any other revenue streams that could cover their financial operations so that they could do their work. And so that's one major problem, right? That that they're very dependent on these gifts. And when they go away, they have a problem. But even with that, we also have to be mindful, right? That with that dependence could also come a over-reliance or uh, maybe we give the donors more say into how the programs are actually operated, right? We can maybe shift our operations slightly or even more substantially so that we can get that money. Even if, even if that shift doesn't necessarily mean stronger programming that's also a risk right because you don't want to lose that that money and then the other thing that i see as a potential challenge is that when people the average person doesn't give it sort of tells us a story about maybe where people's passions are and where people's interests are You know, giving to a charitable organization is part of how we express our desire for change in the world or change in our communities. And if we're not doing that, then maybe we don't have the hope that there's any chance that change can come, or we really feel that the particular organizations involved can't make that change. And those, those are both troubling to me. Those are very troubling to me. And by the way, that's not to say that people who don't have money should be giving. I'm not saying that because you could very easily go down the rabbit hole. Well, Art Taylor, are you suggesting that people who don't have money should be given just like people who do have a lot of money? No, I'm not saying that. There are certain people who are just trying to live and survive themselves. But we find, even in different studies, we found that people with less means actually give a much higher percentage of their income over the years. They have given a higher percentage of their income over the years because they're so passionate about the things that they want to see changed in society. I'm worried that we're losing that. Do you have any idea? Is there anything in the study that helps us understand better what people are thinking when they drop out? Yeah. And so we, again, that question where we asked folks whether they were increasing, decreasing their contributions to charity, we analyzed that based on their self-reported household income. And to your point earlier, poor folks, and this wasn't actually in the report, because we didn't want to, or I didn't feel it was fair to say that people who are in household incomes under $30,000 a year, so really struggling with you know, poverty levels, 
that they should necessarily be contributing to charities. But even among that group, 50% of them report donating to charities. And I think that is wonderful wow. and admirable. And it tells you what others have found as well, that folks who have perhaps less means are also very, and they have a lot of solidarity and give more as a portion of what they have. So that is really to be respected and upheld. But having said that, the other thing we found was that folks that came from households with less means were much more likely to report that they were decreasing their contributions or stopping their contributions as compared to folks from upper class. So uh, if we looked at people with $70,000 a year per household, which is about medium household for the year we asked the question, 6% of them said that they were stopping their contribution as compared to 1% from folks with $200,000 or more. So I do think that we hear from some of our charities that kind of their bread or butter are those people who are doing just okay, but they know that if they fall, they want someone else to pick them up and, or they want to rely on a larger sense of community. And I think those are the folks that are more likely to kind of pull back right now. Um, that's really concerning. It's not super surprising, I would say, um, from the reactions I've seen in whether it was media coverage or social media, no one seems to be thinking this is shocking, but it makes sense that people are worried. And I think it's right to be worried. I think things like economic inequality or just poverty. We know from other kind of realms that it really is a, a big tax on people's health, on people's economic mobility, under attitude towards institutions and the system and their place in it and how much of a difference they could make. So it's not super surprising that that trickles into the charitable sector, but it is it saddens me and it is concerning, which is why I think this deserves so much attention. And the other thing, going back to that statistic that you mentioned just a little bit ago, we did find among the general population of people who stopped contributing, about half, so 47%, said that they stopped giving because they thought someone wealthier should give instead. But if you kind of hone in on the wealthier part of the people who stopped giving, that percentage went up to 59%. So what you're seeing is that people who maybe should be the ones that should be most engaged because they're a little bit better off in general population, they feel, no, leave it to the to the really wealthy people. It is their responsibility. Wow. I mean, I think that's that's really concerning. But also, you know, when you see now in this world of social media and what G- media in general sometimes chooses to highlight, it is that example of really wealthy people giving to someone. And it gets lost the importance of the, of the individual giving what they can and contributing to a cause and creating community around that. And I think that's what really matters to the sector. And that's what we need to protect. Do you think we're making enough of a case for why every person who's able should give something? I I wonder about that. I wonder if we've just sort of moved on. And I know development people in many charities, well, there are two problems. Development people in many charities are focused on bringing in as much money as they can. And their focus is on, uh, therefore, achieving, reaching people who have lots of money. You know, that's the easiest way to bring in the most money. However, the second problem is that we have a shortage of development people in our country right now. And, and so charities are strapped to actually find good people to raise money, to work with their organization to raise money. That probably has some impact too. But by and large, I think the bigger impact has to be on 
we're not, maybe we're not asking folk. And I know in some previous studies, we talked about who's getting asked to give. What, what, how would you characterize that? Yeah, so in different, in, in former studies, what we found is that folks who are younger or who belong to or self-identified with a minority group are much more likely to say that they are open to solicitation, but much less likely to say that they have been solicited. So that's something that we've seen consistently throughout the years. But in this specific study, what we saw when we asked people why they stopped donating, the number one answer was always because I couldn't afford to or something in the financial realm. But after that, there was a huge distinction across generations. And so one of the things that younger generations tended to identify as really highly a high, a high reason why they stopped donating was because they haven't been asked. So 45% of Generation C would say that they have not been asked as compared to maybe 4% of boomers. And it's worth noting the sample for matures, which would be the, the older, was so small because they haven't stopped contributing that we couldn't even analyze it. So it really is much more of an issue with younger folk. And that's a shame. But I think it goes back to what you were just saying. I mean, right now, the 70, I think the age for the average donor is 74. And the incentive for the fundraiser is to really concentrate on people who might give a bigger donation. And it's hard to give the same level of attention and respect to the general population and to reward their generosity, which is just as valuable and is as important to the to the sector. So I think we really have a pickle, a pickle there. And the other thing to acknowledge is that the demographics are really changing and younger folks are much more distributed. We found that they tend to trust a much wider array of channels. So they don't want to only be through direct mail. They also want to be in a given circle, in social media. They want to trust your email. And that requires a fundraising team that is really savvy at a really broad base of of solicitation. And that can understand a really broad set of identities, right? So we're talking about Um, Giving being most effective when you can have an identity connection with the charity and you need to really be able to hone in on that. But there are so many different groups and identities that you have to cater to that it is, I think, a hard challenge. Well, you know, what's interesting, too, you make me think about how different organizations have different approaches to fundraising. You know, some organizations depend on large numbers of small gifts. But if they aren't asking younger people because they haven't figured out how to do it, then over time, what's going to happen to those donors? Now, you mentioned people who are part of the great generation, I guess people who are 70 and over, I guess some boomers are in that generation too now. They continue to give. They, They don't seem to have an issue with it and they're getting solicited. But what happens is people like me, the boomers begin moving off the scene. If we haven't began to reach out to the younger generations. And one of the, one of the thing about the younger generations, we're not talking about generosity here, right? This is really important distinction to make. We're not talking about whether a person is doing things that make them generous. They could be, for instance, giving to a family member or giving to just a community activity that's not connected to a charity. We're only talking right now about giving to charitable organizations. And I'm, and 
assuming, because we don't have a whole lot of ways of measuring this, I'm assuming that generosity in the nation hasn't changed. But the way people express that generosity maybe is changing, where they're just doing things. Maybe some people feel like if I go to a local business, then I'm doing social good. Or if if I pick up three kids from school today rather than my own, then I'm being generous. I'm helping out some other families while I pick up my own kids. So we're doing things that express generosity in different ways, potentially outside of organizations. And I wonder, Elvia, if there's any any reason we should expect that that will continue or do we have had to just assume that people who aren't giving organizations today aren't going to give, or is it just a function of money? You know, is it just a function of, well, today, this is what I can do to express my generosity. But as I get older and as, as my means increase, then maybe I'll give. So a couple of things come came, came up to mind with your question. So one thing I would say is, as you know, we collaborated with the team from the Generosity Commission who had done their own research on being generous, right? And one thing when comparing our data to their data, the main thing that popped out was the distinction with younger folks where they are likely to report being generous and wanting to be generous, but much less likely to report wanting to give to a charity organization. So that speaks to what you were just saying right now. They are just as generous, but we haven't engaged them with the charitable sector. Having said that, when we were looking at why people stopped contributing, yes, the majority of the people said they couldn't afford to, but really, to me, shockingly, younger folks were much less likely to say that they stopped contributing because they can't afford to. So normally that's mm-hmm. the narrative we hear. We don't have, they don't have enough money yet, so they're not ready to contribute. But, you know, 77% of the boomers who stopped donating said it was because they couldn't afford. Only 27% of young folks say they don't donate because they can't afford. They, on the other hand, concentrate on simply not being asked, um, not feeling a connection with the charity, or preferring other ways of being different, uh, sorry, of being generous. And that is mm. something that we really need to pay attention to. On the flip side, when we were asking people, well, if you gave or if you increased your giving, why is it that you gave? by and large, all generations, because it makes them feel good, because they think they can make a difference. But once you start looking at the other kind of responses, when you go to the older folk, they relied on, they say they give because their faith calls for their giving. If you go to boomers, they say they give because everyone has the responsibility to contribute to the community. But if you go all the generations below that, they don't have the same kind of call, but they are just feeling they want to be part of something bigger. And so there's this desire, I think, for connectivity and for community around cause that isn't anymore necessarily fulfilled by religion or by, or by a sense of responsibility, honestly, to community. But there's a gap, I think, there that can be filled by organizations like charity. But what I want to get to is there's a lot of connection there for youth and even not youth, you know, middle-aged folks to be connected with causes and with charities, but somehow we're not, we're missing that link. We're just not getting there. Yeah. Well, I have to say some of the onus must be on organizations too, but it's hard to tell that story. You know, it's hard to get the story out. Although we do have more means of communicating today than we ever had in the history of the world, right? Through social media and others. 
But I think sometimes what we can do on social media is overblown. You know, it's not easy to get a statement out and make it go viral. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not normal. We tend to look at social media as micro messages to micro audiences. There aren't many organizations, even those that have large followings, that can say we depend on social media to get the message out. It's just one of many things. So we still have to rely on more traditional methods. We had a webinar on this recently where we talked about the need for charities to get their messages out across many channels Mm -hmm. nowadays because that's where people are. And you can't win or lose just relying on one particular vehicle for getting your message out. But I think this is a bigger problem than any one organization can solve which is why I'm happy to be a part of the Generosity Commission. I'll talk about that for just a second. The Generosity Commission was formed to help us think about this decline in giving to charitable organizations and to work in different ways to come up with some recommendations for what we could do as a society to change that trajectory, to change that trend. And uh, there's some really great people on the commission. I happen to be co-chairing along with John Tyler, the Policy and Government Relations Task Force, to try to see what we could do within our culture and within our policies to create more generosity. And we're going to come out with some ideas next year for what we can do. But the truth of this matter is organizations, I think, are going to have to campaign together around the importance of contributing in some way to society through organizations and in other ways so that our society can thrive. And if people go back to the origin of our country, they will study and understand pretty quickly that our country's success was not solely based on government. It was based on people supporting each other through community activities. And if that's not the country that we expect going forward, then we have to figure out what will replace that. And obviously government is very large now. Some people will believe it's not large enough. Other people say it's too large. We can have that debate someday. But the bottom line is we still need people, no matter what government does, We're going to need people solving problems in their own communities outside of government. We're going to need that. So this is something that I believe critically important in our society, which is why I'm investing some time and working on this commission. But so many things, Elvia, that you're saying tie into this work. So many things about this study. Now, let me just ask you, we've been doing these studies now for about six years What are you seeing that tends to show up again and again and again as we do these studies every year? That's one question. And another question is, has there been a study where something has really caught your attention and then sort of never showed up again? And any anomalies, I guess, is what I would ask. Yeah, so... I mean, one consistent thing that we try to pay attention to every year is what we call our trust gap. So we ask folks whether they think it is essential to 
trust the charity before they give. And we also ask folks to identify how much they trust the charity on a scale of one to 10. And we like to identify that about 70% of people tend to say, we really think it is essential to trust the charity before giving, but only about 20, 19% of people will say, I highly trust the charity. So we want to get charities to really work on their real and perceived trustworthiness to the donors so that they can create those connections and, and people can give with comfort. One thing that I would say that we've seen over time is that the portion of people who say it is essential to trust the charity before giving has decreased over time. And what I think that comes from is a general distrust for institutions. We've talked about it in the past. This, this has been identified by other folks like the Edelman barometer and how that affects people's agency in their community. So whether they feel they can make a difference and whether they feel they can trust the institutions around them. And so we think that has an effect on the charitable sector. In terms of anomalies, honestly, the COVID years are the ones that come to mind. We try to make a survey every December, but that year we also made a survey in the middle of the year because we wanted to figure out, you know, are people going to step up? Are pe how are people feeling about this whole thing and the charitable sector and their ability to address things? And what we found that year is that people, you know, a lot of people were afraid that they weren't going to have funding. And on the flip side, we found, no, actually people are saying they're going to step up and they're going to contribute for this cause. And the other thing that kind of went a little bit wacko is we always kind of track what the opinion or what, what folks feel about third-party monitoring organizations, what they feel about financial ratios, what they feel about accomplishments. And that year, how much people relied on those factors went down a lot. Because I think the circumstance was so different that they, could, they couldn't expect charities to necessarily have a financial ratio or have a, a rating from a third party. It was much more about what they were saying they were going to do with the money and what the name of the organization, how much it weighed with the, with the contributors. So, so that was a really interesting finding. The other, I think I want to come back to what you were talking about just a minute ago with the Generosity Commission and different ways of being generous. And so one thing that we found this year, about 25% of folks who stopped donating think that giving to a charity is more impactful than contributing with a socially responsible business. But people who increased their contribution, that's above much, much higher, around 58%. So I do think that we need to do a better job identifying how charities have a unique and very purposeful way of addressing social problems. I think we are afraid to say there's so many ways of being generous and so many ways to make a difference in the world that we are afraid to say, don't do this, or because that's not what we want. They are all kind of additive good things, but they're not alternative and they're not competing. And so we really need to kind of create more awareness about the good work that charities do and how it is much more focused in making a difference than any of the other alternatives. I think we're failing that. I think we've reached a point where people think there are equivalencies and they aren't. So we need to be better able to kind of articulate that difference. It's really important to say charities are established for the sole purpose of working towards a mission. That's it. Not to make profit, not to do anything. They do make profits. Let's not be uh, naive. They do, but those profits get plowed back into the operations of the organization to help achieve that mission. And other activities, while well-meaning and sometimes well-impacted um, with the impact, uh, that's not what they're set up to do. Charities in this country are. And the other thing, as 
as people who contribute and volunteer in organizations and some who work, we can influence to some extent the kind of work that's done. We have a say in it and we don't want to overly influence. We want to leave it to experts to do work. But what we say matters to charitable organizations. And so um, you can have an influence. And by the way, if you give to an organization, you don't think that one's doing the right thing, you can go to another one. They're generally going to be lots of organizations that are doing the important work that you think needs to be done. So great point that you bring up about while there are lots of different ways to support social good, the what charities do, I believe, are still somewhat unique in society and that we need to address them that way. Well, look, Elvia, thank you for joining this fourth time. And by the way, for all of you who don't know, you really are like listening to a superstar. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, Elvia Castro. <laughs> Elvia Castro was a member of her national team as a swimmer. So she really is like a superstar. You're listening to someone who has real superstardom. So this is a silly comparison, but let me go on that swimming, <laughs> swimming analogy again. There's this almond milk ad. I don't know if you've seen it. But essentially it has, I don't know the name, Greg, I think is the name of the, of the featured person in the, in the ad. And he wakes up and he drinks his almond milk and he bikes to the swimming pool and he starts swimming. And he, of course, swims horribly. And then suddenly Michael Phelps come up next to him and starts, you know, butterflying across the swimming pool. And, <laughs> and in the ad, the announcer says something like, get out of the way, Michael Phelps. This is not about you. It's about Greg and Greg making his everyday process and his everyday progress. And it, honestly, it reminded me of this conversation because Michael Phelps is awesome. As a swimmer, I would say I would admire him. He's amazing. But at the same time, it's not about him. It's about every individual and their ability to connect with a cause and make part in their community and feel like we're connected to each other. Absolutely. Let's help each other swim <laughs> from one shore to the next. Let's get... <laughs> And let's get people off of the islands to the mainland or from the mainland to the islands to help whatever we have to do. Don't be on the island. Join the community and really participate and contribute. Although I, I, when I think of swimming, I think of you a lot now when I get my cache of photos from my grand about my grandkids because they're all oh, taking swimming okay. lessons now. And I've been able to watch the progress that they've made over the last year or so. It's amazing uh, just to see how well they're doing in the water. So that was you one day and, uh, and you became who you are now and swimming was a key component of that. So, well, listen, everybody, if this is the first time you've heard the heart of giving podcast, I want to ask you, where have you been? Because we've been doing this show for almost three years. Every week, there's a new guest, new topic, and they are amazing people. So if this is the first time, you can go see previous episodes. And also, I would encourage you, urge you to subscribe to the show. And all you have to do is go to one of the podcast platforms, wherever you get your podcast, and hit like. And you'll get all of the future shows as they come out. And we have to talk about it this way because... We don't have a large marketing budget. We don't have any marketing budget, in fact. The only way we can spread the word about the podcast is by doing it here and what we can do on social media. So 
I hope if you've enjoyed what you're hearing here today, you got a lot of information. Oh, and by the way, you can get a copy of the Donor Trust Report at give.org. You can go right to our website and get a copy, a free copy of that report. But as far as the podcast goes, we need your support. We want you to continue listening. You can send us ideas for guests. You can send an email to ataylor at give.org, ataylor at give.org. If you have an idea for a guest, someone who you believe is making a difference in community and has a story to tell, we'd love to have them tell that story. If you want to make a donation to the podcast, you can do that too. We would certainly appreciate it and put that money to good use. All you have to do is go to give, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G, and you'll see the button to make a donation and uh, we'll put it to great use. So we'll see you back here next week with another show. And thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.